You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. Coming up. And I didn't realise at the time, but these clouds and this weather front that was coming in was going to stick to me for the next nine days or so. And I experienced the worst weather I've ever experienced in my life. Um, the, The following morning, my first proper morning, I woke up and my whole tent was just shaking violently in the wind. I looked out and it was a complete whiteout. So I don't know if you've been in a whiteout before, but it's basically when the cloud comes in to your basically less than a metre of visibility. And left looks the same as right and up looks the same as down. And it's so kind of disorientating. I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast, we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on an adventure of your own. But before we start, if you're enjoying the show, sign up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com, where I'll show you behind the scenes, I do giveaways and offering you the opportunity to come on an adventure. On today's show, we have Molly Hughes, a female explorer who broke the record for becoming the youngest woman to summit both the north and south part of Mount Everest, as well as the youngest person to ski solo to the South Pole. On today's podcast, we talk about the highs and lows of those expeditions and some of the amazing moments she's had along the way. I am delighted to introduce Molly Hughes to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, you've been on quite a few adventures in recent years, and I mean, it's truly incredible. You became the youngest person to summit both the north and south of Everest, and recently you've just got back from Antarctica after being the youngest person to solo ski. Probably the best place to start is with you and how you got into these grand expeditions. Yeah, always good to start at the beginning. Um, so I grew up in Devon. I live up in Edinburgh now, um, but I grew up on the south coast of Devon, a little place called Torbay, um, probably as far from any mountains as you can get in the UK. Um, so I didn't climb any mountains until I was 17. And when I was 17, my school organized one of those expeditions where you go off around the world. And we went to East Africa, we went to Kenya and um, did lots of charity work. And then at the end of the trip, had the chance to climb Mount Kenya. And that was my first proper mountain that I climbed, my first kind of taste of a bit of high altitude. And I absolutely loved it. And um, I think I did okay on it. I did pretty well. 
and like getting to the top of that mountain, I knew I was hooked. I knew that climbing mountains was something I was probably going to do for the rest of my life. Um, so then after that, I kind of kept going to school, went to uni and each kind of term, I would save up as much money as I could um, with random part-time jobs. I did everything from like selling ice cream on the beach in, in Torbay to a lifeguard at the local swimming pool. Um, and I'd save up for anything I could. And then in the summer, go off on a, a different expedition with some friends um, around the world and, and climb as much as I could. So yeah, I guess that's that's kind of the beginning of it. So when you say you were sort of climbing with friends before these sort of big ones, what what were you sort of climbing? Was it Mont Blanc or was it up in or sort of around sort of Kyrgyzstan or somewhere in the Himalayas? So usually kind of big expeditions. And I think my first kind of, the thing that drove me at the beginning was like a love for travel and a love for seeing the world and just kind of opening my eyes. Where I, where I came from in Devon is a pretty small town. Um, so that first trip to Kenya definitely opened my eyes. And then I wanted to see more and more. Um, so the year after that, we went on an expedition to India, to the Himalayas there. And did a bit of climbing and all sorts of other things. Uh, the year after that, I think I was maybe 19, the year after that. And we did a quick trip at the beginning of the summer to Morocco and climbed in the Atlas Mountains. And then later on in the summer, we went off to the Andes in South America, um, Ecuador, and did some climbing there. Um, the year after that, I think we went back to East Africa, did Kilimanjaro, um, back to the Alps, to Nepal quite a few times. So yeah, just as much as I possibly could. Um, to see the world, but also to incorporate a bit of climbing into those trips. God, wow. And so when when did you have the idea to climb Mount Everest? Yeah, so Everest came up when I was in my last year at uni and it never been on my radar before. Um, like, as I said, I wasn't like seriously going after mountaineering or climbing. I just did it as part of these trips because I loved it and I loved getting higher mountains. It was amazing. Um, but Everest came up because I was studying sports psychology at university and I had to write my dissertation, which I'm sure you know is a massive project, 10,000 words of writing. Um, and I wasn't particularly academic. I was pretty, dys I am pretty dyslexic. So the idea of like sitting down and writing 10,000 words was terrifying. Um, so I kind of like racking my brain of something really interesting I could write about to make sure I actually sat down and wrote this project. Um, and I kind of thought, what's one of the biggest like psychological challenges in mountaineering? Because I wanted to focus on mountaineering because I've been doing so much of it recently. Um, and obviously Mount Everest springs to mind because it's the highest mountain in the world. It's the most famous mountain in the world. Um, and for this project, I interviewed seven guys who'd all summited. <clears throat> um, I can only find men at the time, unfortunately. <laughs> but I found seven men around the UK. And I went and met them all and interviewed them and asked them kind of about their motivations for doing it, their kind of ability to control fear and anxiety on the mountain, the kind of psychological pressure that they all faced when they sat down at base camp looking up at that huge mountain. Just kind of talking to these guys and hearing their stories of walking through the Western Coombe or along the Northeast Ridge of Mount Everest just totally inspired me. And I knew probably the first time I started writing about it, I didn't want to just write about it. I wanted to see these places with my own eyes. Um, and if I was lucky enough, get get to the top. And so in terms of the psychology of climbing Mount Everest, um, what do you think one of the biggest psychological barriers to climbing Mount Everest is? Good question. Um, and there's tons. Like the guys that I interviewed all successfully summited over a period of about 10 years, um, but they all had really different psychological journeys on the mountains. 
different motivations for going there. Um, and I think a strong motive for doing it is one of the most important things. There were two guys I interviewed who were doing it for a friend that they'd lost. And it was always their friend's ambition to summit Mount Everest. But he unfortunately died. So they did it in his honor. And that seemed like such a strong motivator for them to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, a couple of the other guys just did it as friends in like a friendship group. And it sounds like they had a super fun expedition just with people they knew really well. Um, and they just enjoyed the whole kind of journey on the North side. And that sounded like a really great way to do it as well, doing it with friends and just kind of enjoying it, not focusing too much on the summit. Um, so yeah, everyone had really different motives for being there. Um, one of the challenges or one of the biggest challenges, I think is definitely the pressure that climbers face on Everest. And no matter what motive you've come from, the pressure is always there because you've either spent up to 50, 60,000 pounds to get there, or you've raised the funding, 50, 60,000 pounds, which I think is actually harder than, than spending your own money. Um, so you just put all that money into it. You put all that time and training into it. You've probably been speaking about this for years. And then you're sat down at base camp, looking up at that huge mountain and you're feeling rubbish. Like you're at 5,000 meters, you've got a headache. You're pretty terrified of this mountain and you're thinking, how on earth am I going to get up there? Um, so really kind of working out how to balance that psychological pressure, I think is one of the only ways to kind of succeed on the mountain. And what was the psychology behind yours? Was it very much about about uh, the thrill to experience it or was it more about something that had happened to you? Yeah, really good question. And one I don't think I really analyzed or thought about actually until quite recently. Um, and when I was like a kid and when I was at school and even at uni, I was like pretty shy. I was always one of the shyest kids in the class. I would never put my hand up and say, you know, answer a question. I remember just always going bright red in class if, if a teacher asked me a question. Um, so I never had that much like self-confidence, but I always kind of felt deep down inside of myself that I could do something and I could hopefully achieve something cool with my life, even if I didn't have that kind of confidence to shout about it. Um, so I think in a way, when I started learning about Everest, learning about the, the journeys that these guys went on, I thought, hey, I could probably do that. I might not have the confidence to start shouting about it just yet, but I think that might be something that I could do to prove to myself that I can actually achieve something with my life. Um, which is a bit weird in a way and a weird place to, to choose to do that. But I think it, it was great. And I, I went there and we had a great expedition and kind of on the back of it, I definitely gained so much more confidence um, and just that kind of self-belief that I can do things and I can achieve things. Um, so I think that was actually my motive for doing it at 21. <laughs> yeah. Proved to myself that I could, yeah. No, it's it's a good it's a good one. Um, and so you, the first one was when you were twenty one. The first summit was that of the north or south face. So that was on the south side, so the Nepalese side. Nepalese side. And how did the north and south really sort of compare? Because we've we've had a few people on from Geordie Stewart to Lucy Rivers Buckley, and um, you know they've both summited different different sides what what was how did you find the sort of difference between them both um really different really different and I feel pretty lucky that I've had a chance to to do both the north and the south um the thing it's hard to compare it too much because obviously I was very different when I went the first time when I was 21 on the south side to when I was 26 on the north side 
when I was 26, I was a much better mountaineer. I was, felt much older, um, much more sensible, much more experienced on the North side. Um, and I think that's probably why I love the North side way more than the South side. The South side, I was there in 2012 and it was a very busy season. It was the kind of the first year you saw all those queues on the Hillary step and people getting into trouble because of the overcrowding mainly due to a small weather window, um, but it just meant the mountain the day I was up there was horrifically busy. Um, and we had an amazing expedition on the south side. It's an incredible place, like going through the Kumbu Icefall and the Western Coombe and Scaly Lalozzi Face is absolutely amazing. But yeah, the, the busyness of it uh, was dangerous, absolutely. Um, whereas comparatively, the north side feels so much more remote. It probably had about a third of the climbers on it. So when I summited on the south side, I think about 150 to 200 summited the same day. When I summited on the north side, we think there were probably around 25 to 30 people spread out over a whole day, um, which which made such a huge difference. The north side felt remote. It felt like proper mountaineering in a yeah. way, which I know is stupid to say on Mount Everest, but it felt, yeah, it was cool. And I had a, a very small team on the north side and we just had a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I think fun and, and less busy was was good. And with um, the reason to go back again and summit, was that the motivation of the record or was that motivation just to try the north side? Yeah, I think it was a few reasons. Like I had spent such a long time preparing to get to Everest the first time and interviewing all these guys and learning about it. And half of them had done it from the south side and half from the north side. So after I did the south side, I kind of always had this feeling that I'd only really seen half of the mountain and only experienced half it. But I spent my life talking about it and I felt like I needed to go and see and experience the other side. Um, and that was, that was definitely one of the motivators. Also, the north side is like steeped in history. It's where the first British teams were going in like the 1920s. And I wanted to, to see it, see Tibet and experience it. Um, but then I also, I guess the South side, I did suffer a lot, um, every day, every minute of every day, probably. Um, and the summit night was so tricky with all the people and just like my first time above 8,000 meters. Um, so I suffered a lot and I got myself to the top and down just about. Um, so I think I wanted to go back and really experience it as an older, slightly older person as a more competent mountaineer. And just with that experience, I wanted to actually enjoy Everest and see if it was everything I'd kind of built up in my head. Um, and the North side definitely did that. We had an amazing couple of months on the North side. Yeah. It's got such a rich history behind it that I'm, I'm not surprised you wanted to go back. Um, and so that was 2017 and then you had the drive to go to Antarctica. What, what was behind that motivation? Or was it simply by sort of pushing yourself a little bit further each time? Um, yeah, so after Everest, I got home and it always takes a good like 12 months after a big expedition to even start to think about what's next because the suffering is still so fresh. So after about 12 months, you kind of forget the pain a little bit and just remember the good things. Um, and I started to get a little bit obsessed with Antarctica probably around that time. Um, I used to live with a guy, I had a housemate who worked with the British Antarctic Survey and he spent like a couple of field seasons down there and he'd come back in the spring with amazing photos and stories and, and videos of Antarctica. And that's kind of when I, my eyes started to open up to this continent. And I feel like once I get a place or a mountain or something, 
uh, under my skin is all I can really think about. And I know that I want to go there and just experience it. It's never really about these records or achieving anything. It's just about wanting to travel to these places and see them with your own eyes. Like you can read about them, you can hear about them, but it's not until you're actually there that you can fully experience a particular environment. And Antarctica was so interesting. Like it's this huge, vast frozen continent. Um, it's the world's biggest desert. Um, no like humans have ever permanently lived there. Um, there's hardly anything like in the center of Antarctica. There's, there's nothing there. Not even bacteria can grow because it's so cold and so inhospitable. Um, so yeah, obviously I wanted to go and see it, see it with my own eyes. Uh, but getting to Antarctica takes a lot. If you don't work for something like the British Antarctic Survey, if you're not a scientist, um, you can go as a tourist, but that costs crazy amounts of money. Um, so I knew I had to go and do an expedition down there, an expedition that I could hopefully get funded by by sponsors like I do with, with all of my trips. Um, so yeah, I found, did some research and found an expedition that would go from Hercules Inlet, which is kind of where the the landmass meets the sea ice of Antarctica, right on the kind of edge of the continent. And if I skied from there to the South Pole, uh, like 700 miles, um, and if I did it solo, then I would be the youngest woman to do it solo. So with getting sponsorship and and trying to fund these expeditions, you always had to find like a, a USP or a record or something that you can target. So yeah, I found that that record that I would be the youngest at the age of 29 and thought, okay, that's what I got to do. And this is my, my target to try and raise the thousands and thousands of pounds that I need. Good. And so in terms of sponsorship, how, how long did it take you to raise that sort of money? Um, almost 12 months, I think for Antarctica. Um, oh, it's always incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I kind of thought it would start to get a bit easier because I've, started to get a track record of you know being successful on these trips but it didn't it was unbelievably hard um but yeah in the end i managed to secure it all by about six weeks before i was gonna leave oh wow god which was good because everest the first time was four weeks before so a little <laughs> bit better <laughs> so six weeks before sign the dotted line the contract and you're like oh my god amazing <laughs> right, Literally, right yeah <laughs> and so landing in going from edinburgh or at the time to Antarctica, it's quite a mission in terms of you have to fly to Chile or New Zealand um, and then fly from Chile to... Uh, so you fly from Punta Arenas in Chile to uh, a big camp called Union Glacier because um, the majority of the, the kind of expedition Antarctica are run by an American company called Antarctic Logistics and they have a big camp called Union Glacier. Um, on the kind of close to the kind of edge of, of Antarctica, um, an amazing camp. Like people go there who are going to do trips like I'm going to do. People go there if they're going to go and climb Mount Vincent or if they're going to go to visit like the penguin colonies on the coast. Um, so it's like a, a hub of all sorts of random people from around the world, um, all there to do different trips and different expeditions. Um, so yeah, a really cool place to, to start a big expedition like that. Oh, God. And so how did it, how what was the feeling like when you sort of arrived and you were sort of prepping, you'd got your sledge and you knew that you were about to spend two months in complete isolation? Yeah. So arriving at Union Glacier, I had about three days there um, to do all the kind of last minute prep, pack up my sled, um, do my kind of checks with the comms team. Because there, there's a small comms team who every evening I would have to ring them up 
on my sat phone and give them my location, let them know I was okay. Um, so do all the checks for them, meet the doctors that are at the camp, go through my first aid kit, um, get to know them. So if I've got any problems, I can ring them up and, and have a chat. Um, so doing all that kind of last minute prep. Um, also getting used to the, the cold a little bit, getting used to the 24 hour daylight, which was really cool. Um, and yeah, just doing all the last minute checks um, over those three days. And then suddenly it was time to to fly to Hokies Inlet, which is just a, like a short half hour or so flight from Union Glacier. Um, and then getting dropped at Hokies Inlet, that was kind of the start of the trip. And I was, you know, finally alone in Antarctica. And so you're sort of taking off. You had two months. Were there, what were the sort of amazing moments from that trip? Um, many amazing moments. Shall I, maybe I'll talk about the hardest moments first because okay, it started really <laughs> badly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's start with the terrible moments. Then. <laughs> okay, the good stuff happened later. Um, well, I guess like the first two hours were quite good. Um, okay, two, two hours out of two months. <laughs> <laughs> so I began, the plane flew off, um, left me there. I began along the kind of the sea ice of Hercules Inlet, which is flat. The sled that I was pulling behind me with all my gear in it uh, was moving really well because um, it's flat, really hard packed. After about two hours, I kind of got to the, the edge of the inlet and started on the incline. Um, and actually, most people don't really realize, but if you do a trip like this to the South Pole, you're basically going uphill the whole way because you start close to sea level. And then the South Pole is at like 2,800 and something meters above sea level. So it's pretty much uphill the whole way. Um, and as I hit that incline, that first incline, the winds really picked up and they were kind of flowing downhill towards me. Um, and at that point, I remember looking behind me and seeing these massive clouds coming over the horizon. And I didn't realize at the time, but these clouds and this weather front that was coming in was going to stick to me for the next nine days or so. And I experienced the worst weather I've ever experienced in my life. Um, the, the following morning, my first proper morning, I woke up and my whole tent was just shaking violently in the wind. I looked out and it was a complete whiteout. So I don't know if you've been in a whiteout before, but it's basically when the cloud comes in to your basically less than a meter of visibility and left looks the same as right and up looks the same as down. And it's so kind of disorientating. And that whiteout just stuck on me for eight days straight. So for eight days, it didn't let up at all. The winds just raged. Um, a couple of days, it was like 45 knots going on 50 knots, um, super strong winds. And every day I had to try and get out and try and ski in these conditions because I had, you know, miles to make. I only had a certain amount of food in my sled behind me. So the first, yeah, nine days of this trip were absolute hell. Um, yeah, it really kind of hit me straight away. Antarctica wasn't letting, letting me in at all. Um, and just trying to get through those first nine days was a struggle. I was hardly making any progress. I was aiming to do about 12 nautical miles a day. And the first few days I did three and a half, four, five, if I was lucky, like hardly moving uphill, deep snow. It was, it was horrific. Um, so yeah, not until day nine did the, the whiteout finally clear. And when it did finally clear, um, and I could finally see more than a meter in front of me. Uh, I just cried. I just cried so much. Just like all of that emotion from nine days just just came off, and I I cried like hysterically to to nobody in Antarctica. We we had Jenny Wordsworth on the show in episode nineteen, who I think was down there at a similar time, and she sort of said that she always made sure never to open the tent before she was dressed. 
<laughs> that's a good good technique absolutely did you did you follow that did i follow that yeah i probably did but like the thing is you can when it's really windy and horrible you can hear it you know you wake wake up in the night <laughs> you, you know what's coming <laughs> yeah exactly but no that is a good tip because if you were to look out you maybe wouldn't want to get out of your sleeping bag um, in some of that weather so one, once the sort of relief of that nine day storm had passed you were probably opened up into this sort of vast white expanse that must have been amazing yeah so like the first thing i i saw um when i came out of the whiteout were these three mountains called the three sails mountains um and luckily that was actually the point i was navigating towards for the last nine days or so so it was good to know i was in the right place um but i think when it first started to kind of open up i i couldn't tell what it was i think maybe my like vision had gone a bit weird because i hadn't seen anything for like nine days but it just looked like these three big gray things, like, and it was hard to tell like the distance, how far away they were from me. And at first I thought it was like a massive plane, just like hovering in the sky. I think I was probably going a bit crazy at the time, but as the, the cloud cleared more and more, I realized it was these three beautiful mountains. Um, and that was such a relief to see. And then kind of on from there, I guess I quite quickly realized that there's not really much in Antarctica. It's basically just like white as far as you can see in every direction. Um, after those mountains, there were uh, another small range around about my halfway point. Um, then after that, there's just nothing. So there's literally such a lack of like visual stimulation. So there's nothing to see apart from white. Sensory stimulation, there's nothing to to smell or taste or experience down there. So you're so, yeah, sensory deprived on an, on an expedition in Antarctica, especially if you're doing it solo, there's also no one yeah, to talk to. I, I, I was about to say, and then another, along with all that, you're alone with your own thoughts. I mean, that is quite something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird experience. And I think like, the beginning was such a struggle for me. It was unbelievably hard. And then when the sun finally came out, um, I started making slightly better decisions. And that was the point that I decided to get a resupply. So at the halfway point, I called in to get 10 more days of food dropped there because at my time I was about seven days behind schedule. And I kind of worked out that I would have to do like 16 nautical miles a day for the next 35 days to get to the South Pole with the food that I had. And I realized that that wasn't the kind of expedition I wanted to run down there. I didn't want to be like, I didn't go there to break any kind of speed or time records. I went there because I wanted to see and experience Antarctica. And if I was rushing like that, just to get this kind of record of being unsupported, I knew that that totally wasn't what I was there for. I didn't want to risk injury. I wanted to go and enjoy it. So after I called in this resupply, I relaxed a lot more into the expedition. I knew I'd have plenty of food, plenty of fuel to get me to the end. And I could just totally do it within my own time, under my own steam. Um, and that's when things totally started to improve. And with that, I think I found some sort of headspace because I would literally ski for like an hour and a half, stop for a 10 minute break, ski for an hour and a half. And during that kind of hour and a half, my main aim would literally be to lose my head. I wanted my head just to disappear away from this like white world into memories or into future plans, future ambitions. And it was amazing how much my, my head and my brain kind of opened up um, when there was no other stimulation around me. Um, there was one day where for about an hour or so, I kind of relived this like school sports day from when I was like seven years old. 
And it was all these memories that I didn't even know were in my head, but I kind of remembered it in every like tiny, minute detail from like the morning in the classroom to like the egg and spoon race at the end of the day. Like I remembered every tiny detail and it was amazing to find out that those kind of memories were still in my head, even though I didn't know they were. So I think, yeah, that lack of sensory stimulation and, and anything down there did do some amazing things to, to accessing different parts of, of my brain and my memory. I think you've just given me flashbacks to my seven-year-old sports day as well. <laughs> <laughs> Egg and spoon race as well? Yeah, the sort of 70-meter dash <laughs> yep. on the field, little little oak tree in the corner. <laughs> yeah, good, good thing to think about when you're skiing along in Antarctica. I think. Yeah, yeah, because I when you do these solo expeditions, it's I find it's a very th- sort of therapeutic and it's sort of like a form of meditation. You are, because your day-to-day life is you get up and you are walking, you know, and that's all you do. And so you have a lot of time to think, unless you have like a podcast or uh, some music in your ears, um, but you have so much time with your thoughts. And so you get these sort of flashbacks all the time. I always find. Um, and you sort an of, unbelievable amount of headspace down there. Yeah. Um, and I think you kind of appreciate stuff a little bit more as well. Because um, I remember one day, like Antarctica is a really windy place. Like almost every day it was horrifically windy. And there's always like a headwind as well coming at you. But there were um, a couple of days where the wind just, just died off completely. And when it does that in Antarctica and when you're alone, um, the silence is incredible. Like I don't think there's silence like that anywhere else in the world probably. Um, and I remember one day, cause you don't really hear it until you stop. Cause as you're skiing along, your skis are scraping, your, your kit is rustling, your sleds making noise. But I remember one day I was probably about five days from the pole. And I remember just stopping and sitting on my sled for a break and there was zero wind whatsoever. It was reasonably warm cause the sun was shining down on me. And I just sat on my sled and every other day I've been so regimented with my 10 minute breaks. But on this day, I just kind of melted away into the silence and the silence was so deafening and so kind of all-encompassing and I was probably sat on my sled for like half an hour before I realized I should definitely start skiing towards the pole <laughs> um, so yeah those kind of amazing parts of Antarctica I think will, will stay with me for a long time and how, how what was the finish like how did you feel when you finally got to the little ball at the south pole <laughs> um amazing yeah so I I stopped the night before about five miles from the South Pole um, for a few reasons. I, I didn't want to, because if I'd kept going that night, I would have had like an 18 mile day and I could have done it, but I really wanted to arrive at the South Pole um, fresh and to remember it because I've read so many stories and accounts of people that push really hard for the last bit and then they don't really remember getting to the pole and it's all a big rush. But I was like, no, this is what I've been skiing towards for the last 58 days you know I'm going to enjoy this so I stopped just five miles before had a nice like final night by myself which was kind of some kind of therapeutic thing I think to ending the expedition and then the next morning I woke up really early because I was pretty excited to to get into the pole and, and see other people um, so I skied the last kind of five nautical miles took about three hours or so really pleasant ski um, I came into camp it was really early in the morning because I left really early so it was like eight in the morning and I skied into camp and unfortunately everyone was still in bed um, so I skied in you know expecting some like fireworks or something uh, everyone was still sleeping but I managed to wake them up and um, yeah there were a few people I knew there Jenny was there 
um, another uh, female skier called Anya from Germany, who's, who's amazing. So she just arrived the day before me. Um, and then Devon, the camp manager, <clears throat> who had helped with all my prep for the expedition. So it was great to see them get my first kind of hugs uh, in a couple of months. And then from the camp, I skied down to the, the little ball, the, the actual South Pole. Um, and yeah, it was quite emotional, you know, because you've focused on that point for so long in the trip. And then you've finally done it and you're there. Because I guess on my Everest, by the time you get to the top, there's never that sense of achievement or anything because you've still got to get down the mountain again. But when I finally got to South Pole, I knew that was it. Like I could take off my skis and maybe never put them on again. And, and that was okay. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was a nice feeling. God, what a story. Well, that's amazing. I, it, must, it just must have been such a, an amazing moment as well to sort of finish it. Um, yeah, I've I've sort of always I've always wanted to go to Antarctica. So, oh, you should. It's it's an incredible place. Like, yeah, you could, it's hard to describe because it's so vast and and white. <laughs> well, that's what it actually is vast and white. <laughs> I know. It's it's funny. Sort of when you describe it, everyone must everyone listening must be just like, why? I mean, if it's just a vast desert of whiteness, what would it? How does that appeal to you? But. I don't know, there's, there's some draw to Antarctica I always find. And it, unfortunately, it's becoming harder and harder. But um, no, it's, it just sounds like an amazing place to go. It's different to anywhere else, really. Just the scale of it. It kind of almost feels like you're on a, another planet. And maybe it's partly due to like the 24-hour light or there just not being anyone there. But knowing that there's no one around you for such a long way and there's just nothing there and you're so... Um, know like independent and yeah it's amazing amazing that you can survive and and work in those conditions and make things make things happen and get to the pole yeah mm. it's a cool place you should yeah. you should go <laughs> well, well one day we, we need to get out of this uh, pandemic first <laughs> yeah good point <laughs> um well molly there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest um with the first being on your trips what is the one gadget or item that you always bring with you? Good question. Um, and probably have to say something like an iPod. Um, and not even just my phone, because in Antarctica, I have my phone, but Spotify stops working after like 30 days without the internet. So I took a really old school iPod and filled it with all seven Harry Potter books and loads of uh, like 90s classics, um, which got me through Antarctica. That is exactly the same story of my run across Kenya. <laughs> I, went, I, went, I went with uh, Spotify. Spotify stopped working in Kenya. And then um, because they don't have a deal with them at the time. And then I had to listen to Harry Potter for the entire month. Why do you say had to? It's, a, it's an honor. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Like when I run, I like to run to music. But then I was suddenly running to Harry Potter and listening to Stephen Fry as you're running. He's sort of he's very slow. And so you end up almost going to a walking pace listening to him because you can't really concentrate. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Maybe that's why it took me so long to get to the South Pole. Yeah, it took me quite a long time as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can blame Stephen Fry then. Good idea. <laughs> Um, what is your favorite adventure or travel book? Question. Um, the, the one of the first books I read about Everest was from Stephen Venables. Um, it was called Higher Than the Eagle Soars, I think. Um, <laughs> and an amazing book about his um, expedition on Mount Everest and getting to the top without oxygen and 
having to like dig a snow hole close to the summit and spend a night there. It was amazing to, to read about that story um, and really in- inspired me, I think, to get into the big mountains a bit. Why, why are adventures important to you? Good question. These are tricky. Um, <laughs> I think they're an amazing way to uh, grow and become more resilient and become the people you think you are like you challenge yourself in the outdoors and yeah that's the only really place I've ever grown and achieved things um so yeah I think they're important for everyone just to to push yourself and work out who you who you actually are yeah I would I would agree with that um what about your favorite quote (laughs) good question um there's one from Junko Tabei that I always used to put in my, my talks when I do some school talks. Um, and it's all about um, like willpower being the most important thing and like technique and ability are just things that you can kind of learn. Um, but willpower is the one thing that's going to make you achieve things in life. And I think that's totally true. Like when I started with my idea to climb Everest, I didn't have any other techniques or ability, but I had that want and that will. So if you can harness that willpower, you can learn how to do anything and you can really achieve anything. Okay. Yeah. Good quote from, from Junko. Oh, that's yeah, a, that's nice a nice one. one. Um, people listening are always keen to travel and go on these sort of grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to go out on an adventure? <laughs> um, just to take those first steps. Like I could say all sorts of things about trading and, you know, <laughs> researching it all and doing it properly. Um, but I think the one thing is just committing to yourself that you're going to do it. And once you take that first step, and for me, it's usually telling somebody else what my plan is in my head. And then after I've told them, I've got to do it. So take that first step and then just put everything you possibly can behind it because we're not on this planet for very long. So you want to go out and you want to see it. You don't want to end your life with the regrets that you could have gone somewhere. You could have seen something cool. So yeah, take that first step and then wholeheartedly go for it because the world's an amazing place. Yeah, I always think the start is the most terrifying and exciting part, like planning these trips. But I think, I don't know about you, but always the first, when you are there about to start, you have all this moment of dread. But as soon as you take that first step, it sort of just washes over you. But before you're like, oh my God, all this fear and everything. But then you get into it and it's a bit so much nicer. Yeah, absolutely. And the ball starts rolling and you kind of move along with it because you've put all the kind of prep into it. Molly, how can uh, people find you and follow your adventures in the future? Um, So social media or my website is just Molly Hughes, Molly with an IE, hughes.co.uk. There's loads of blogs and videos and all sorts in there. Um, Or on social media, there is Molly J Hughes. Um, So yeah, come in at the moment, come and see me uh, sitting in my flat in Edinburgh. (laughs) <laughs> but in the future hopefully hopefully more good adventures <laughs> and uh what what is your plans for the future it's a good question um and i'm not really sure like bigger expedition wise it's quite hard to plan anything at the moment um i'm hoping to do a lot more stuff kind of based out of scotland um I'm lucky enough to actually like just recently in december become the new president of scout scotland um so working a lot with young people and and pushing for them to get more into the outdoors to help with physical, mental health and everything. Um, so hopefully a lot more work with, with young people and then hopefully some more big trips, but we'll, we'll see when this pandemic finally finishes. Well, Molly, thank you so much for coming on today and telling your stories. Really, really some incredible moments you've had along in the last three years. 
yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I feel very lucky uh, to have seen and done what I've done. Um, and yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Are you keen for an adventure? With the lifting of lockdown restrictions in the UK, I am delighted that my first adventure retreat can go ahead this summer. Out, off-grid cycling, hiking, and so much more. Head over to zebraadventures.com for more details, but there are only six places left for this retreat. Have a great day and happy adventures. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.